When you woke up this morning and turned on your phone, you were probably sitting there, like me, just wanting to know who won. But if you were looking for someone in Washington to answer that question for you, well, it's complicated. How are you feeling? I'm going to ask my colleagues to join us here. Around 11.30 last night, Nancy Pelosi took to the stage at Democratic headquarters to revel in the news that the Dems had retaken the House of Representatives. Thanks to you, we owned the ground. Thanks to you. Thanks to you, tomorrow will be a new day in America. Remember this feeling, know the power to win. And then this morning... President Trump shared his take. What lesson did you learn most from looking at those results? Was there one thing that, as you kind of reviewed them, that you'll change your strategy, not just for Congress, but kind of going forward? And then just a follow-up question. Well, I think the results that I've learned and maybe confirmed, I think people like me. I think people like the job I'm doing, frankly. Earlier this week, we talked about how this election was really two elections— a debate between two Americas, suburban, rural, open, closed. And Slate's Jamel Bowie told me today, that's right, but with a caveat, especially after last night. What's crazy is that the two Americas thing is, it's true, but it's also overstated. Like, broadly speaking, a a substantial majority of Americans said... We, we would rather have Democrats in control of things than Republicans. And across demographic groups, I mean, early exit polls show, and exit polls should be taken with a grain of salt, but early exit polls suggest that Democrats won every single demographic group except for whites over the age of 45 and white men. Every other group voted for Democrats. And so it's two Americas, but like one of those Americas consists of like everyone, but a narrow but, like, numerically large slice of the country. I'm Mary Harris. This is What Next. Today, I'm going to nurse my election night hangover with Jamel Bowie. He says it is totally clear who won, even if there are some big races in Florida or Texas or Georgia where it doesn't quite feel like that. So as some Democrats mourn their losses and others celebrate victory, Jamel has some ideas for what comes next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So I went into my conversation with Jamel with this one understanding of how last night went down, and I came out feeling differently. Here's what I was thinking as I watched the returns last night. Democrats took the House, which everyone kind of expected, but then they lost these big races that so many people thought they might win. Andrew Gillum, the Democratic gubernatorial candidate in Florida, he conceded. Beto O'Rourke in Texas did, too. And Stacey Abrams, who many thought could become the first black female governor in the country, 
she's now locked in a standoff with her Republican opponent, Brian Kemp. I saw Democratic initiatives passing. Three deep red states expanded Medicaid. Florida gave felons the right to vote. All while those same voters elected Republican officials. It was confusing. So I was hoping Jamel Bowie could straighten me out. I started by asking him what actually worked for Democrats last night. A little bit of everything went for them, and that's what makes it difficult to draw any lessons. Uh, The candidates who tacked to the center to win traditionally Republican districts won their races. Candidates of color who ran liberal campaigns in, you know, traditionally Republican districts in New York, in Illinois, um, in Kansas, they won their races. Hmm. Um, and they won them um, quite handily. So you're saying you have, like, a variety pack of right. Democrats. You've got, like, that Kellogg's, like, the thing your parents let you get on vacation. Right, <laughs> like right. You've got Pops. You've got Rice Krispies and Fruit Loops. You've got, like, the whole thing. And so if 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 there's anything to take away from strategists, I'm not sure that it's anything ideological because candidates of all sorts won their races with different kinds of messages. I think the thing to take away is that Democratic voters seem to be energized by women candidates. They seem to be energized by candidates of color. They seem to want to come out for those candidates. And to the extent that they're thwarted, as they were in Florida and Georgia, it may have more to do with sort of institutional barriers and structural barriers than it does with any enthusiasm. And I think the Democratic Party as a whole, looking to its sort of like future strategy, should perhaps make kind of voter access or bring voter access to the top of its agenda. Um, Because it appears that unless it does that, winnable races will break the other way, not because of bad campaigns or lack of enthusiasm or bad messaging, but because they their candidates or, and their voters are facing obstacles that are just difficult to get past, even in the best of conditions. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I've, I do feel like in the press coverage leading up to last night, there was so much talk about the Stacey Abrams strategy of going to every county, the Beto O'Rourke strategy of going to every county, and Andrew Gillum, you know, being very, very progressive in Florida. And a lot of folks were looking at those strategies and comparing them to Dems in Midwestern states or maybe someone like a Kirsten Sinema in Arizona who are playing more to the center and saying, um, coming out of this, we might see a realignment based on who wins. And so when I was watching the returns last night and seeing how they were breaking in Florida and in Georgia, I thought, what is this going to mean for how Democrats think of themselves moving forward? I think one of the problems of looking, one of the the analytical problems of looking at elections is that there's this there's this strong tendency to say that because someone lost, therefore what they did was bad or wrong. Huh. But people can lose for things that have nothing to do with their strategies. People can lose for things that have something to do with structural factors, with, with institutional factors. So in Texas, Beto lost. But there's every indication that he ran one of the strongest statewide campaigns by a Democrat in a generation. Hmm. And the result, if you look down ballot, is that Texas Democrats made remarkable gains across the state, um, unseating incumbents, narrowing, you know, Will Will Hurd in the district that includes um, El Paso won his election by double digits in his last race, which they projected to win by double digits. And at three o'clock this morning, it looked like he actually might have lost. Hmm. Um, and 
further returns show that he had a couple hundred vote margin. But that's that's a major narrowing that a, a, a an unknown challenger without major backing from the National Party, nearly unseated incumbent who was projected to win handily in that race. And so did did Beto run a bad campaign or did he run a very good campaign that because of structural issues in Texas from a Latino vote that is more Republican in other states to a voting infrastructure that is actively hostile to getting people to vote, did he run into those obstacles but perform well enough that Democrats in modestly more favorable districts and, and localities were able to capitalize on energy to win. That's what I think happened there. I think that happened, may be happening in Georgia. It may be happening in Florida, where Gillum made inroads in several traditionally Republican suburban districts, but couldn't couldn't overcome a surge of voters in the rural and exurban parts of the state. Looking at some of these like structural issues, restrictions on voting or efforts to purge the voter rolls, do you actually think the Democrats have the fortitude to fix these problems? I think there's some evidence that they do. Um, in the House, House Democrats have said that one of their first priorities is is passing a restoration of the Voting Rights Act, um, which suggests that should they get the presidency in the Senate, they'll do it for real. Democrats on the state level have begun moving towards where they have trifectas. They have the governorship in both legislative chambers. They've been moving towards sort of liberalizing voting laws. Um, and that has a real effect. I would ex- I would I would expect um, in the wake of uh, Tuesday that more Democrats who have those opportunities will begin to take them. In Virginia, for example, um, Democrats have the governorship. They have the state Senate. They are one seat short in the House of Delegates. Um, but next year, there is another round of statewide elections for the legislature. And you can imagine that if Democrats prevail in those elections, that they'll also push for sort of liberalizing voting laws in the state of Virginia. So I, I do think that this is the next obvious frontier. When you are coming so close to winning in so many contests and you know that these institutional factors can make the difference between winning and losing and that they appear these appear to be popular agenda items, again, the Florida Amendment outcome is is in the indicative of this, that voters... People want people to vote. Right. People want people to vote. People think that people should be able to vote. And so it seems pretty, I don't know, obvious <laughs> to make your <laughs> part of your, your messaging and campaign strategy to say, if you elect us, we're going to make it easier for people to vote. No one likes to stand in line for two hours. Like, no. you could be the most, like, hardened reactionary. You don't want to stand in line to vote for two hours. Yeah, it's funny. So I voted here in New York yesterday, and my experience was terrible. I waited in line for an hour and a half. Then all the machines broke. And I just looked across at someone and I said, gosh, like, imagine if we were in Georgia. And it made me realize these issues really are structural. This is a solidly progressive state and we still haven't figured it out. Right. Voting is the beginning of civic engagement. And so it doesn't make sense for it to be arguably the hardest part of engaging civically. Hmm. I mean, the one structural issue we haven't really addressed head on is race. Right. It became so toxic in Georgia and in Florida but with Andrew Gillum, with Stacey Abrams. And I mean, I, I just wonder, like, we saw a poll right before the election. And no, granted, polls are polls. You can't trust them. But Andrew Gillum was ahead. And then on Election Day, he didn't pull through. And all I could think of was the Bradley effect. Like, right. are people saying they're going to vote for him and then they get into that voting booth and we just can't have this honest conversation about black candidates? I mean, the differential between 
Nelson, the Senate candidate, and Gillum, which appears to be, you know, 50,000, 60,000 votes, seems to suggest that there is a degree of that. But I think, you know, the president's gambit going into this, which was if he could kind of stir up racial hysteria, that he could get his voters out. And I think it worked. I was skeptical that it would work, but it worked. And it got... And we saw this in 2016, too, this rural and exurban surge. Voters who may not respond to pollsters, who may are a little harder to pick up in surveys, but on election day, they just, they come out and they vote for Trump. And I've been thinking a lot about those voters and why sort of racism and, and race uh, race baiting work so well to get them to the polls and, and why why this worked in Florida and Georgia, possibly in Texas and Indiana, but didn't work in like Wisconsin or hmm. Michigan or, or wherever. Like why why it worked in one place and why it didn't work in the other. Why do you think? Part of me part of me thinks that what's happening is that you have one group of working class white voters who are actually feeling pain from the president's economic policies, who, you know, their states um, may have been ahead of the curve on the Affordable Care Act, and then the president is trying to repeal it, that the tariffs and the trade wars are hurting their livelihoods. And and so they're less likely to – that the economic pain makes them more likely to want to vote for Democrats. Right. And then you have one group who are not feeling that same economic pain and aren't worried that Trump is going to try to take Medicare or Social Security because he pledged explicitly not to. And thus, they kind of can feel free to vote their resentment to, to vote the hmm. own the libs impulse. I don't know if that's the case, but it's it seems to explain this like differential and similar voting voters behaving very differently. And then I mean there is at a certain point there is just the fact that like Florida and Georgia both have very fraught histories of racism, even for the South, that in Florida you have these rural counties, you also have sort of fraught relationships between the Cuban-American uh, population in the state and black Americans in the state. So it's possible just at the end of the day, like a critical number of Floridians didn't want to vote for not just a black candidate, but a black candidate who very much came out of the state's black establishment, who wasn't like Obama, who you could almost think of as, you know. A white person. Yeah, different from other, not like other black people, but right. someone who very much was and who owned proudly the fact that he was just another black guy from Florida. That's interesting. Yeah, because they were both Stacey Abrams and Andrew Gillum are both so unapologetically black. Right. Which is kind of amazing to see on the campaign trail, frankly. Right. And, you know, when I hear you talk about it, I feel I can feel you being so generous about how these voters are behaving. <laughs> I see it slightly differently, I'll say, as a white person, where I think— this bias is invisible to people in some ways. I mean, this was very explicit in these two races, but I think a lot of white people don't see it. You can see it in the way that the experts talk about the polls. They're talking about suburban voters. They're talking about rural voters. No, those are white voters. (laughs) But we don't talk about it that way. We don't own it that way. We don't racialize it that way. And so... Like, I, I have friends who live in Germany. I feel like they deal with their racial history in a very different way. It's at part of the education. You know right, what I mean? Right. We don't make this visible to people. Um, I mean, what's tough about these race, the, this this election night, though, is that you also had, you know, Lauren Underwood in um, 
in Illinois who is running in a historically Republican district, predominantly white. Is this the nurse? This is the nurse. Yeah. Um, her, her. She's black. She's black. Uh, parenthetical for uh, longtime Slate search. Her younger sister used to work for Slate. Ah. Um, and she won. Yeah. So Lauren won. So you have Lauren Underwood, um, a black candidate, a nurse uh, who won in a historically Republican, predominantly white seat in Illinois. You have A.G. Delgado in a, um, a suburban seat in New York, historically Republican, majority white. And he fought really stiff headwinds. Right, right. Of, like, going, uh, they put out ads with rap videos. Exactly. This is, and Delgado's a big city rapper. He hates cops. I mean, very blatant They just stuff. went for it. Uh, and he won. So it's tough because you have you have Sharice Davids in, in Kansas, I believe, mm-hmm. um, uh, native woman, queer woman uh, who who won her race. And so you have you have these candidates, these diverse candidates who, if after Trump won in 2016, you had said that you were going to run a bunch of black people and native people and Muslim people and queer people uh, to win in historically Republican districts, um, and you were and and you thought you had a good chance, people would say that sounds insane. But it turns out that all those candidates did quite well. And then you have two candidates down south who came extraordinarily close to winning their races. I mean, very slim margins, which suggests that you could try it again. Try it again under a slightly better institutional, you know, atmosphere. Um, Try it again, and President Trump is a little more unpopular, and you get a different result. Hmm. You're giving me a lot of optimism, (laughs) I feel like. Like, some people lost, some people won. Keep doing the work. And I, I, I understand that. Not to say that I'm half a side here. <laughs> right, right, right. But, and I understand that people would be can feel disappointed. I mean, I'm not not to take a side, but I'm I'm and you probably can't tell from my accent, but my family's from the Florida Panhandle in southern Georgia. Like Andrew mm-hmm. Gillen reminds me of people that like that I am related to and that I love and, and care about. And so I was disappointed just on that kind of very basic identity level that someone whom seems to represent people like people in my community, in my family loss for what are likely some pretty ugly reasons. But I think that those that loss, Abrams' likely loss, Beto's loss, I think they obscure a lot of important movement on the ground and things that under slightly different circumstances could go the other way. And there's no reason to just, if you are a Democrat, if you are a liberal Democrat hoping to change the party, um, there's no reason to give up. There's no reason to give up on those particular candidates either. I mean, it's would not be unheard of for someone to run for the same office twice, but win the second time. Jamal Bowie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. If you thought the midterm election results would lead today's news coverage, yeah, we thought so too, obviously. But then this afternoon, we started reading reports that Attorney General Jeff Sessions had submitted a letter of resignation to the president. And let's be clear here, Trump asked him to resign, which sounds a lot like being fired. We're going to get into what all this means for the Mueller investigation and everything else at the Department of Justice tomorrow. Stay tuned. What Next is deep into its piloting phase. We're going to be making shows until the end of next week. But then we're going to take a break retool. Come back better than ever in January. In the meantime, leave us a review on iTunes so other people can find us. Or just get in touch directly. We're at whatnextatslate.com. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris, and produced by Mary Wilson and Jason DeLeon. Our engineer is Terrence Bernardo. 
talk to you tomorrow. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.